Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lori Clark Show. This episode of my podcast is brought to you with the help of ZoomUs, a video and audio conferencing interface. It's important to know that I'm in no way sponsored by Zoom. I just want to tell you how much I love it. It is very reliable, easy to use, and provides excellent audio and video files that my team and I produce to share the power of story with you. Another non-sponsored, couldn't do without, but just have to tell you how good it is, is Squarespace. When they say it is the all-in-one platform, it really is true. I go into the back end of my website multiple times a day, adjust things, post podcast, add links, and look at our show's analytics, which all sync across my devices. And when I need an image, Squarespace provides an excellent resource that's powered by Unsplash. Now for my most favorite feature, the Squarespace app. Um, Being a working mom, there never seems to be enough time in my day. So when my daughter's in ballet, I sit in my car and upload, post, and manage everything on my website from the app. It's really cool and seamless. Squarespace is really, really simple and very dedicated to helping me create a brand of excellence. So with that, big shout out to Zoom, Squarespace, and Unsplash. Thank you for helping me tell people's stories. With that said, let's move on to the best part about today, the show. Please allow me to welcome my next guest on The Lori Clark Show. This is Timothy Forner. Um, He wrote a book called Montgomery Schnauzer P.I. That's the book. (laughs) Such a great book. And I'm happy to say I have a autographed page here. And this is not your average paw print, let me just tell you. It's very exciting. Um, My daughter loves this book. And Tim, I would just, let's just jump in because we were already kind of jumped in. Sure. Um, what, how did you start this book? What happened here? Um, well, we adopted a, a puppy, my wife and I, uh, a schnauzer, because I had had experience with the breed in the past. And as far as I was concerned, it was a schnauzer or nothing. <laughs> so I convinced her we should get a schnauzer. And we kind of won the dog lottery. We got a very special dog when we met Spencer. And I know everybody says their dog is special. And, and I believe that. I and mean, that's why I wrote the book. And that's why there's so many dogs in it. Every dog is special. And Spencer was unique, unique soul. So among the many things that Spencer could do, he could walk off leash everywhere in downtown, you know, downtown Vancouver. We used to walk off leash everywhere and I would come from Yale Town to Coal Harbor, like two and a half kilometers of winding through busy streets, busy sidewalks, crossing the street. And he was an absolute saint walking with me on leash. People would stop and ask me, like, how did you train him? How did you train him to walk off leash? And I didn't know what to tell them because quite literally, I didn't. I didn't train him. That was his idea. And he trained me that this could work. So what I would do is he was such a bad on leash dog that in order to, as a puppy, in order to get anywhere at all, I would unconnect the leash and walk away from him and hope that separation anxiety would drag him along with me. And it did. It did. So as he got older, then he got really confident about, I can walk off leash. I don't need the leash. So I would only put it on him if I had to. And it wasn't a punishment. It was like, if he steps off the sidewalk into the street, 
he gets the leash. If he walks too far away from me, he gets the leash. I did it to keep him safe, not to punish him. And then he figured out, oh, okay, if I do all the things right, I get to stay off leash. And he was just, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing to watch him. And I never took any video. I really regret that now um, because it's too late. But at the time, I didn't think it was special. I thought, well, that's Spencer. That's just how he is. So this special little dog and his little personality quirks informed the character of Montgomery Schnauzer. And I would notice, like all dogs, he goes out there with his nose to the ground and he investigates everything. Everything must be investigated. Every rock, every leaf, every twig. Got to turn it over. Got to sniff this side. Got to sniff that side. So I was making jokes to my wife that Spencer thinks he's a detective. That's what's going on. He thinks he's a private investigator. He thinks he's, you know, and he needs a, a detective name. And I pulled Montgomery Schnauzer like right out of thin air and said, that's what he thinks he is. He thinks he's Montgomery P. Schnauzer, private investigator. So that was just a joke. For years, it was just a joke. We didn't really do anything with it. But I started compiling notes on the things that a Montgomery Schnauzer character might do and inventing new characters and coming up with storylines. And eventually it all gelled into an outline of a story. And then I started writing the book. And I, Spencer was the model. So all the pictures of Montgomery in the, in the book, the artist used pictures of Spencer as the baseline for creating. So he looks like, like the character in the book looks exactly like Spencer. <laughs> right, right. And I, I can envision it. I really can. <laughs> Uh, that's what I appreciated about you when we met. You're, you're, you look so fondly at this. Like this is a point yeah. of pride for you. It's such a great story, but it's more than a story. It's, yeah, I like to think so. Yeah, I thank you. How is it more for you? Um, well, because, it, uh, because it's very emotional, I guess, because it's Spencer's book as much as it is my book. And so this one was really dear to my heart. I've written a lot of stuff since I broke my writer's block and started writing. I've written tons of stuff. And some of the screenplays, we send them off to agents to look at and they never call back, surprise. But it doesn't break my heart. It doesn't break my heart that they don't like it. It's like, well, okay, it's not for you. That's fine. I had a lot of fun writing it. So if you don't like it, that's fine. We'll find somebody else who does like it. With this particular piece, because it was so close to my heart, I just felt like I couldn't tolerate any any negative feedback about the manuscript at all because it was a labor, a real labor of love. And it almost, I almost halted on the publishing. I almost kept this one, I kept a lid on this one. Um, it took me a long time to get over that fear and say, okay, I'm going to let you publish it. I'm going to let the world read it. It was a really difficult thing to do. And surprisingly, because that's what writers want. That's why we write. So it, it even took me by surprise. That was so hard to let go of the manuscript and turn it over to somebody else. And so um, you, Spencer is your muse. He was the one that, yeah. you know, pulled you. Would you say he pulled you out of writer's block? Um, I would say he had a really big paw in that process. <laughs> uh, when we get to the writer's block. He was, had a really big paw. He had a real big paw. He had a paw in it. Yeah, I had a paw in it. Um, definitely. When we get to the writer's block, I can't give you a definitive date when the writer's block ended. It was about 20 years, give or take, but it kind of depends upon how you measure that sort of thing. So, um, you know, when I wasn't writing at all, I definitely had writer's block. When I started writing again, it was drips and drabs here and there. It was very slow. So this particular piece is, this is the first time that I have ever published a book 
So this is a landmark event, um, but it's much later than when I think the writer's block ended. Now, when the depression ended, I, I have a definite timeline of the depression, the progression of it and how it ended. And it, it ended with a bang when Spencer showed up. So he really had a hand in, in that aspect of it, of um, giving me relief from lifelong depression. Okay. Well, we're going to talk all about that like sort of at the back end of this, because we, we do want to focus on the story and, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, this is a journey and the illustrations in here and the drawings are so great. And They're beautiful. Aren't they? Yeah. I can't take credit for them. That was a fabulous artist. Um, Alina, she does goes by her first name, just Alina M. Uh, and she, uh, she walked into my imagination and pulled the images out and showed me what they look like. I can't draw to save my life. And then she come along with these pictures <laughs> that just, just knocked it out of the park. I don't know if you can see this. Oh, I can see it. Wait, oh, it's very, I'm getting Turn that glare. Turn it a little bit. I'm getting that glare. If you're listening only on podcast, he's just oh. showing me, he's trying to, oh, I can see it now. He's just trying to show us uh, an image. Yeah. Yeah, it's not working out. We're very not well. seeing it. You have to go to my website, montgomerysnauzer.com, and look. There's an image of um, a Spencer dog, a schnauzer, in a Sherlock Holmes coat, smoking a pipe, and there's actual smoke coming out of the pipe. I and saw it's that. Not, it's I not love that. The work. That is the first image that she ever drew, and the publisher said, "We found this artist. We think she might work. Here's a sample of work." And they flipped this page over and showed me the page, and I was just like, "Oh my god." Did she just nail it? Just nail it. From that point forward, it was like, Alina's my artist. That's it. No one else can draw this character except her. She did such a good job. And I, and I like how, you know, at the beginning, you're so descriptive about just the, the thing that really I loved was when you talked about like the parkade, when he was mm -hmm. like, and this concrete and he, he didn't know. And it was all this sort of like, the way you described it uh, was real. It, it felt like you captured the essence of a dog. Thank you. And you really- That spent, was the goal. Yeah. Well, you spend a lot of time with dogs, right? Yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on the early drafts with the voice, right? Because as writers, we have to choose uh, third party omniscient. Are we going to tell the whole story as if we're looking at it from the you know, bird's eye view? Are we going to focus in on one character? Are we going to tell it first person? He's going to say, I did this and I did that. And I wrote several drafts trying to figure it out. So I finally settled on it would be an omniscient view that I'm looking at, but it would be primarily focused on Monty. So very rarely do we focus on other characters. We occasionally come out and show what's going on with Sarah. When you say omniscient view, can you yeah. just, if, if, if someone that doesn't know what that means. Oh, okay. Um, well, this is, uh, you would say he said this and she did that. And it would be like you're a disembodied uh, observer watching the action as it takes place. Most of us watch TV in the third party omniscient. We're watching and we're seeing everything that goes on okay. because um, we're not there for real, but we're behind every character, looking at every scene and watching it from a third party outsider view looking in. Yeah. Most, because I wanted him to be, the inspiration for the story, aside from being Spencer, was the old school uh, hard-boiled fiction. Uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, Dashiell Hammett, you know, the, the Maltese Falcon is referenced because um, Monty thinks of himself as a Sam Spade character. So 
uh, those books were primarily written first person. So I think, I think the Maltese Falcon is all written from the perspective of Sam Spade. So Sam Spade says, I did this and I did that. And I could have that wrong because it's been a long time since I read it. Right. But hard-boiled fiction, especially when it shows up on TV, like the, the old black and white mysteries, they always had the voiceover. They always had the talk over, right, of the detective telling the audience what he's doing as he's doing it. And I wanted that, but it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And it was primarily not working because every once in a while, I just wanted to show that this is what Monty thinks is going on. And this is what Sarah's observing. I really wanted to show that dichotomy of he thinks he's investigating a crime and she thinks she's got a bad dog. That's right. the primary and I, and, conflict. And the I dog. loved that because it, it was really evident when, you know, okay, so spoiler alert. Like if you're not, if you haven't read the book, then yeah. we're going to probably be spoiling some things. But you know, when they were taken to the, I mean, my, one of my favorite parts was when they were taken to the, 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 the police station yeah. and they were, they were put and, um, and he meets the, uh, <laughs> like I laughed so hard. Little Houdini. Little Houdini. Steve. Steve. Yeah. Steve, Steve, the Chihuahua. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh. I just, it just was lovely. And the drawing behind it, I, I was really intrigued by that. And of course, you know, then he's there and he doesn't want to disappoint. You can tell he's like, he knows that Sarah's a little bit, you know, angry or upset. And he knows he might've been a bad dog. Yeah. Yet, he suspects at that point. He suspects. <laughs> the and problem might be in, him. Right? And yeah. it's like, she doesn't know how to you know, walk him and, and, and spend time. And so it's almost like you've brought in this healing aspect of what dogs can do for people. When, if people just allow a dog to be a dog, to do their powerful thing, Mm -hmm. they'll change your life. Yeah. That's the subtext. And I'm glad that you picked up on it because the primary story is it's a dog who thinks he's a detective who gets involved in a crime. And this is what kids react to. This is what kids like. But the subtext of the story is it's a lonely, brokenhearted woman who's having trouble putting her life back together. And this dog comes along and without really trying, he helps her. So maybe that's another reason why it's it's close to my heart because it was a very familiar story in my family. Well, and and a lot of families, if you see a dog as a pain, Mm -hmm then they only know how to reinforce yeah. being yeah. a pain. Yeah. Um, if you see the dog as the companion and the partner and an equal mm-hmm. and as, some, as a being, and I was almost going to say someone, because I, I look at Nymeria, you know, she's 85 pounds. She's this glorious, beautiful being. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like she, it feels like she talks to us all the time in yeah. the way she interacts. And, you know, if someone in our family, I've got four kids, so you can imagine uh, how busy my life is. Um, when someone is struggling, uh, she just is there, like, you yeah. know, bumping into them, but not purposely moving into them and saying, I, I'm here, I'm going to yeah. help you relieve this pain or your tears or your sadness or whatever. There's such power in, in the presence of an animal, even a cat in your life. And mm-hmm. so this really brought that to me where 
I realized that, oh, that's really true. And then it hit a pain point for me because I lost my little Samwise Gamgee. He Mm -hmm. was a little Norfolk Terrier and he's been gone for now a year and a little bit. And, um, I, he was my kid's dog. He, he wasn't, he never came across as my dog. He never wanted me. He never wanted to be around me. And, (laughs) and yet, and I interacted with him in that way. I was like, Oh, Sam, you're such a pain. You bark all the time. Dead, dead, dead. Yeah. And I didn't realize the value mm-hmm. of who he was in my life. And I think I've lived my life with no regrets. And this story, um, I have a regret. And the yeah. regret is that I, I don't believe that I gave him the respect that he was due. My kids did, but he was the kid's dog and he didn't, that was his circle and it was his job to take care of them. And when he died, it was like the biggest hole in our family. We were like, wait a minute, where's the, this dog was 14 pounds and the presence, you'd think that he was like, you know, this, like he could encompass the whole house in in his stance. Um, That's terriers for you though. They're so big, They make those 14 pounds count, don't they? They sure do. And (laughs) when you captured that, I thought to myself, this is a piece of you and your story yeah. in here where Montgomery took someone who was sad and maybe not lonely, but sad yeah. and, and not, not, you know, in that place at that time in their life and changed who you were. Uh, I mean, yeah. so cool. The power of friendship, the power of family, right? And that's what dogs intimately know is they know family. So I always think of the dog as the family glue. You put the dog in there and, and the dog's responsibility is to like bind the family together and make everybody happy. And they do a really good job of that if you let them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you want to share, when do you want to share about Rosie? Um anytime, I guess, if you brought it up, she's, um, because we lost Spencer in March. We should talk about that. Let's talk about that first. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, I don't even know if I can talk about it. Jesus. Uh, it was such a heartbreak because he was such a big part of our lives. And it was, to me, it was the final lesson that Spencer taught me about, about love and about family is that, you know, I've lost my mother. And that was extremely hard. And I lost Spencer and it felt like it was probably just as hard. And maybe some of your listeners are going to rankle at that and say, how could that be? And, you know, so what I figured out was, well, love is love, right? (laughs) Mom was an extremely important person, but I could go for days because I lived in a different city. I could go for days and pretend that mom was still alive. And because I only talked to her on the phone, saw her every other weekend, that kind of thing. So there was a separation there, even though she was very important. And then the dog is there 24-7. He's always in my life. I brought him to work with me every day. So there wasn't a day that went by that Spencer and I weren't together. And then to have that just end, just abruptly end, was devastating. It still is. I know. But... The lesson there is that 
you know, love is love. And if something is important to you, it doesn't really matter what that thing is. You're going to grieve it when it's gone. And it really is about, grieving is about the people that are left behind. You know, it's not if you, if you believe in an afterlife or if you don't, the people that are gone, they're no longer suffering. It doesn't matter what, where they ended up. They're no longer concerned with the things that we mortals are concerned with. So it's about who's left behind is the grieving process and how to pick yourself up and move on after that. So for my part in it, I'm just really thankful that Spencer chose to spend 16 years with us and teach me the lessons he taught me and give me this book. A little fact, he didn't live to see the publication of the book. And he's a dog that may not have been important to him. I don't know. Um, but right there. <laughs> the, uh, the very first printed proof that I got showed up and it had the, the, the stamp on the back of it, the date stamp on the back of it was the same day that Spencer died. It showed up a few days later. Not planned. I just... It just happened. The proofs, they happen when they happen. It's not like Amazon. Once the book is there, you order it and you get it two days later. That You can't plan the proofs. They get to it when they get to it. And, and so here it was, and I turned it over, and there was the date that he died. Also happened to be my birthday. So it was like a really powerful, meaningful day. So I still have that proof on my bookshelf with my little stack of treasures. When you, can we talk a little bit more about the illustrations? Cause you know, I'm stuck on that a little bit, but sure. you, you really did capture because Spencer took you through Yale town. He took you through Vancouver. He was assisting mm. you for all those years. And this so when, was his city. This was his city. Yeah, He was and, a city dog. And this book is the, it starts out like in Yale town. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I never actually say it. I mean, for two reasons. One is I want the reader to imagine whatever they happen to be in. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, you ask the author about his process, you're going to get the story about the process, right? Right. But I did want the reader to be able to just picture any city. But more importantly, he's a dog. He doesn't know the name of the city that he's in. And he's never going to know the name of the city he's in. It's just not important to the dog. So it never comes up. Never, except in my yeah. mind. <laughs> well, there's lots of Easter eggs for the, the Yelltown people. There's lots of Easter eggs in there that, uh, and I've had neighbors tell me after they read it, it's like, is that our neighborhood? Because it sure seemed like it was our neighborhood. Yeah. Well, and, and, and we were talking when I met you and I met you in Yelltown and we were sitting yeah. at, a, at the coffee shop and, and uh, I was noticing some little Easter eggs, uh, some little treasures. And, and I talked to Saylee, my, my youngest daughter, about it. And I said, you know, there's, it's really cool where we went. And I reminded her where we had been. And I said, right in those spots was actually, you know, where this book became. And, and um, I love how you bring in these little characters into the book. I, I love it. I love how mm-hmm. the cat comes in. That really, uh, the ninja cat was. Fix uh, the ninja cat, yeah. I loved it. What, what makes you think? Like were um, dogs that you m- knew in the neighborhood, were they the muse for this group? Uh, no, no. Um, that's, that's a question I've noticed a lot of um, people ask fiction writers. It's like, you know, did you, did you base this character on a real character, a real person? And we often don't, uh, okay. and, you know, um, that's not to say there aren't elements of real 
characters in there. Uh, Licky and Sticky came out of an experience that I had when I was looking for an apartment, like before I even met my wife, before Spencer was even an idea and I needed a place to live. So I went to look at this apartment and the landlord had two pugs. And when I got in, I like dogs. So I, I went down to pet the pugs, but the pugs being pugs, they climbed all over me and they licked me everywhere. And so I came out. Oh, I, I did lie. I did lie actually, as I had been dating my wife at the time. So she asked me how it went, the, um, the apartment shopping. And I said, well, I got attacked by two pugs and I ended up lick, licked and sticked or something like that. So I dubbed them Licky and Sticky. But I don't really know who the dogs were. Just right. they licked me all over and left me sticky. Oh, so, of course. So that's, that was the closest thing to like real world. But I wanted, um, because we're creating a fictional world, I wanted fictional characters. So the way I see it is I don't write about real, real people because it's not a story about real people. If I wrote about real people, that would be a biography. And, you know, I'd love to write a biography, but this isn't a biography. So what I tried to do was bring elements of the dog park experience. So if you go to any dog park in this city, you're going to meet lots of interesting characters, the people and the dogs. The people sometimes are really interesting. (laughs) So it was an effort on my part to just populate the book with lots of interesting characters so that it would feel like a real dog park. Uh, Page 132, um, you talk about um, this moment. Um, Sarah was annoyed. And you said, um, the other humans pulled their dogs away. Sarah reached in and lifted Monty up into her arms. Some of the dogs barked and lunged at Monty. She turned her back to them. Out of the corner of her eye, she could have sworn one of the pug twins winked. She looked over her shoulder. Both pugs sat looking up at her. They seemed to be smiling, although she doubted such a thing was possible for a dog. And, uh, and Sally was like, could it be true? Like, did, does she know the dogs can speak? And, <laughs> right? And I love that because someone might gloss over that. It, that might not even be, you know, um, a point of conversation. But for me, because, because of the connection I have to my animals, both my cat and my dog, and to Samwise, um, Gamgee. Um, I, I, I know that there is a language and they, they, they're looking at you and there is a lot of conversation coming out of them at that mm-hmm. point. And it's really cool how you, you know, you, Sarah slowly moves into love. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Oh, that's great. I love it. I'm just looking at this, like this page here. Yeah. That's a, it's a really important scene, that particular scene. The, it the, is. Just, yeah. It is because it looks like, you know, it looks like he is, she was crying and he was coming to her for giving her comfort. Like, mm-hmm. and that's something that I think um, we can move into now this conversation about you know, now that we know that, you know, sweet, um, Spencer, Spencer was, is gone and it's not been very long. So it's still really fresh, but as beautiful of this story is, you have now, uh, gotten a little pumpkin. Yeah. Rosie. Rosie. And I thought that that 
her being given to you mm-hmm. is such a healing part of your journey. And it almost like inspires the next level of you moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we always knew we were going to get another dog because um, I just feel like a house without a dog isn't, it isn't a home. It's not complete until you have a dog. So I wanted another dog. Um, we were looking at puppies uh, and it just felt like it was a betrayal of Spencer's memory to just go out and get a puppy. Like we were trying to replace him. So we really felt that, um, you know, Spencer was the one and only time in my life that I hadn't gone to a, sh- a shelter and rescued a dog. So I thought maybe, you know, especially given that the book is all about a rescue dog, that that's something I ought to do. So, and because I wrote the book and the book has a schnauzer in it, I wanted a schnauzer to bring to book signings. So we had to be particular about the breed. And that's an awkward place to be because the shelters are overflowing with dogs. If you want a dog, um, go to the shelter and get a dog. You will find a a wide variety of, of dogs there. But picking a specific breed is difficult. So we happened to be in Southern California and my wife had been cruising these schnauzer um, Facebook groups looking for schnauzers. And she just happened to be in the Los Angeles shelter and her adoption day came up the day before we were leaving. So we borrowed a car and we drove up from San Diego to Los Angeles and we went to the shelter and we looked at this dog um, and nothing of her personality was evident in that meeting. So there was a, a, an ugly dog, a stinky dog, a neurotic <laughs> dog, antisocial, and just she wouldn't take peanut butter off a spoon from the, the handlers. At the, she was just so freaked out. So it was a leap into faith of just the dog needs a home. We're going to rescue this dog. So now we're driving in this borrowed car on the way home, and I'm wondering if we're going to have to have it steam clean because this shelter stink is so bad in there. And I'm thinking, this isn't going to work out. We're going to have to adopt another dog because there's no way this dog is going to dog shelters. Because the uh, past uh, of her, her experience was so Yeah, I mean, I, they, come, they come with problems usually, shelter dogs. Well, not usually. I'm quite frequently, they're just, and it was the case with Rosie, just um, good dogs in unfortunate situations. And so that's something to be aware of. If you're looking for a dog and you're going to the shelter, that dog that you meet, that's not indicative of what that personality is going to be like. So we're 12 hours out of the shelter. Um, well, not quite, but by the time we stop at uh, Petco and get supplies for the dog, and then we have to stop and eat, and then we come back and we get to San Diego after fighting traffic. So my wife um, picks her up, carries her into the shower, and showers her off. And then she hands her to me in a, in a blue towel and says, I bathed her, you dry her. So I'm drying this dog. And it it's probably about eight hours after she was out of the shelter and I'm drying this dog and she falls asleep in my arms. And after that, then her personality came out slowly one step at a time. And then we find she's a wonderful dog. She's perfectly trained. She's loving, caring. She's really cute. Like a bath and a haircut really made a huge difference. She's adorable. And I find what interesting about Rosie is that by comparison to Spencer. So I wrote a story about a shelter dog who finds his forever home. Spencer was a silver spoon dog. We got him from a breeder and he had everything handed to him right from the get-go. He never had a hardship. He would never know a hardship if it came along and bit him on his butt. And <laughs> Rosie is so much like the character in the book. I She's know. in an animal shelter. She had a family. We have no idea who that family is. We rescued her. We brought her here. So aside from that 10 days of hell, in this animal shelter, she's probably led a, a pretty pampered life. 
we took her to the groomer. The groomer said, oh, this dog has been groomed before. She's a, an old hat at this. She was just perfectly fine. And that was a surprise to me because I was thinking shelter dog equals problem dog. But no, no, she was just, she was a homeless dog. She had a home for seven years and then she was homeless, poor thing. So her journey really mirrors Monty's journey. And that was interesting because it's a case of life imitating art, right? Yes, yes. And, and really what you described there is, is part of the process of life where, you know, you, you, you're inspired and you, it, that inspiration carries you through over a whole bunch of adversity and through it and around it. And it, it carries you and winds you through. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, it's over and there's a new stage. And I just yeah. find it so intriguing that you have a schnauzer. She is, looks like Montgomery. I mean, I saw her, I saw her, what was it three weeks after you got back? Yeah. Yeah. She hadn't had her hair cut yet, I don't think. No, she was scraggly and cute, but she didn't stink. She smelled like a rose. Oh, no, was she? And we'd been bathing her frequently because she had this, all those patches of hair that were missing. I left well, that out from, of the story. That's from, important. you know, like, trauma, right? Like, from trauma, yeah. And you say, and, and, and that was what was interesting to me is like, because I know Rosie, I've met her. She's, you know, quickly smelled my hand and then said, I don't even want to talk to you. I'm just going to sit <laughs> on Tim's lap. Um, but when you talk about, you know, the fear and the, in the police station and, you know, just like describing it, you know that, that it must elicit all kinds of uh, responses from dogs. And yet you have loved her and so many other people have loved dogs and cats from into their family again, right? Mm-hmm. And giving them that positive experience and allowed them the space to be their next dimension self. Like yeah. they're not in this world. They're just not, right? Like they gotta be like connected to, I don't know, but they're not, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think because they don't, uh, the dogs don't worry as the way people do. We, we disconnect ourselves from whatever life forces brought us here. And, you know, we're busy going to work and building whatever we're building and putting our money in the stock market and watching it do whatever it does. And we get really wrapped up in material things and we just sort of forget the simple things of life. And the dog never forgot that. They're, no. they're, they're, I, mindfulness is something that dogs master. They're in the moment all the time, all the time. Well, and this book is in the moment all the time. Tried. So, thank you. <laughs> I, you know, it's just so great. I mean, like uh, your website is absolutely stunning. I, I cannot believe it. Like, it's just lovely. It's, uh, the website's, I've got a web designer that helped me with that. And of course we use Alina's beautiful art to decorate yes. it. Um, yeah. And I'm really, I'm looking forward to, one of the things I'm really looking forward to when it comes to Create Book 2 is I'm really looking forward to working with Alina again because yeah, she's the little good. details that she pulled out. There's a seawall scene and I described it to her, but I didn't describe the little individual rocks, the way that they're, the rock bricks look like little castle crenellations mm-hmm, along mm-hmm. the seawall. Yep. I didn't describe that to her at all. And, you know, when she turned back the art, it was like, wow, that's Yale Town. That's what my neighborhood looks like. Now um, you say in 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 uh, your 
when it's on your about page, you talk about um, that you, it started with you making stories up about your dog to entertain your wife. Yep. Yep. That was the genesis of it all. So what would you, what were you doing? Just because you were thinking that, you know, um, every, every twig, every leaf was being turned over that Mm -hmm. this was your PI. This was your, you're a private investigator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, it was really just uh, an energy of playfulness, right? Because, um, you know, the one thing that my wife and I have a really strong bond over is that we both feel the same way about yeah. Spencer. Yeah. yeah. So the family joke was always, you love Spencer more than you love me. And I, okay, well, <laughs> you love Spencer more than well, you love me. Take I got I to gotta tell you, my husband this morning, he woke up, he gets up like ridiculously early and, and I, I woke up when he uh, leaned over and he kissed me on the cheek and he said, he started laughing. And I said, I mean, like I just, you know, sort of opened my eyes. I said, what are you laughing about? He said, I'm laughing because I just kissed Nymeria, who was laying at my feet on the bed. <laughs> he said, and she looks exactly like you this morning, where she's like, oh, hi, I'm going to bed. It's just, it's just lovely. I, you know, I can't, I've never, I never had a dog other than Sam, of course, and Nymeria and Sam, like I told you, was our kid's dog. And he really let us know that his love and devotion, he knew when it was time to go to school. He knew when it was time to pick up Mm -hmm. those kids. He would sit by the door. He'd be like, "Uh, why are you lollygagging around here? We got to go get my babies. You know, he was just, it was crazy. And his life, it was, this is a circle of trust and you aren't even in it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's funny. Yeah. Right? But Nymeria is now, even though I spent 13 years every day with Samwise, every day, we were together for 13 years. I always had a kid somewhere around there yeah. um, in that time. But now I don't have anybody at home. And Nymeria is with me all day. And that presence that you speak of, that healing presence, that, that storytelling presence is, is available. If she goes through the park and I'm thinking, oh, this is a, she could, the story that I could tell about this dog. Yeah. But I'm going to let you do it because your, 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 your creative process is much better than mine. I have to yeah. say. I like to hear those stories though. When people want to tell me about their dog, I, I really, I like, I like to meet dogs. I like to hear their story. I like to know what's going on with other people's dogs because it's something that, that binds humanity together. So many of us, we have pets and we love our pets. So, um, there's always a commonality there and something I can learn from somebody else's pet story. What other than, you know, your muse, your sweet, precious muse, what really was this story kind of burning a hole in you to, to come out? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the stories do that. Um, for me as a writer, it's, uh, it's a, it's a chance for me to exercise my demons because these characters are bouncing around in my head. And unless I put them down on paper, they drive me crazy. I just, I don't get any peace. So I, I did have a burning need to, to write the story down. Um, I did come out of the, like when I actually had the book in my hands, it was almost like waking up from a dream because it was, it was so long. Um, so much had happened. And I was in my own imagination for so long that, to actually see it physically here. It felt like it 
it's something that happened to me as opposed to something that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, sorry, I've actually forgotten what the but original question was. When you say was. happened to you, yeah, that is really important because, yeah. like, again, it and the, like, it's weird to say. Okay, this is a children's book. This is like you know, but this happened to you. It wasn't something that you were like, oh, I'm going to write a children's book. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to write this children's book and yeah. it's going to go out there, um, you know, and we're, we're just going to give that to the world and see what happens. You were like, no, this is a process. That is what I respond to about this. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody who's created really good art, and I don't want to add my judgment on this. I'm not trumpeting my own horn here saying this is good art. I, I really appreciate all the, the feedback I get about the art, but for artists, it's something that you're inspired to create. So, you know, uh, when Twilight was a big sensation, all of a sudden there's vampire books everywhere. I could have said, I want to, I want to make money as a writer, so I'm going to write a vampire book. And I could have gone to work writing on my vampire book and it would have sucked. It would have been terrible. I didn't have any good vampire ideas. <laughs> you know? So why am I forcing it? And this is, this is what caused my writer's block in the first place, was trying to force something to happen instead of allowing it to happen. Oh. So I allowed it to happen. I opened myself up and I let my subconscious just drift. I created a persona that I now call the dreamer. The dreamer is the person who is allowed to just look out the window and do nothing. That is part of the job description. And when I do that, ideas come. When artists do that, the ideas just come. And our role really isn't so much to force them, but to accept them, write them down, and then do something with them. And so that's, this story came out, the, the, the inspiration was divine. That's how I look at it. Um, it's something that came to me as a gift. And so I was simply passing that gift along as part of this creation process. And yeah, I put a lot of my own heart and soul into it. And a lot of the research that I did on dogs, all of that stuff was in there. But I was inspired to write it, which is why I wrote it, as opposed to, this is going to be big, let me do this. I, that, I don't think that's, I don't even think that's possible. I know that Disney makes entertainment for money. Marvel makes entertainment for money. Um, a lot of Warner Brothers, they all do it for money. And they're really good at it. But they are all drawing on the art that people have created even generations ago. Like Disney's made a lot of money on fairy tales written down by people 400 years ago that's not an accident. If they just try to create something, uh, sheer force of will. I, I don't think somebody who's a um, really good numbers person um, is going to create a great book. And I don't mean, I mean, there's probably out there an accountant right now working on a fantastic accountant mystery story. So I don't want to disparage those people, but I'm saying that they're still doing it with a different energy than the energy that does actuarial tables. It's, it's a different energy. The actual world tables are done by what I call my mechanic. So I have the dreamer. He comes up with the ideas. The mechanic is the one who creates the ideas. Nobody can, nobody can sell art unless it was good art to begin with. And good art is inspired at, at, the, at your soul. Not up here, but in your heart. Oh, like, so now we have to talk about this. <laughs> okay. I'm open. <laughs> well, because in our meeting, the thing that you said to me 
as it was pour, you remember it was pouring rain and we were sitting outside? Yeah. yeah, it was a very typical Vancouver afternoon. Was, I remember that. I yeah. was, like, was on my lap shivering. She was shivering. We were drinking coffee and at, at a Starbucks and it's pouring rain. We were under this awning sort of thing. And yet it was kind of coming in, but we didn't care. We were talking about the power of this creative process. Yeah, we and were having a great day, you and I. Weren't we? It was yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. I cannot wait to, to spend, I really want to spend time with you where we zone into one thing and make a show and then another thing and make a show because okay. you, you've, the, your experience and the struggle and the wrestling is my life. It's like exactly what I have done for years. And I know I have so many friends and brothers who have the same feeling where we've gotten together and they're just like, oh, this is killing me. But you said this one thing that I literally, it helped me. It saved me. It, I don't know. You said to me, along with this mechanic and dreamer, Mm -hmm. you said, well, I have to, I had to learn to take off the creativity cap and put yep. it over here for a minute and put on the mechanic or the administrator or yep. the business guy. Yep. Because when you are that creator and that have that creative focus, a lot of the time, it's just, if you open that door, it's just full on. It almost is like a fire hose yeah. It doesn't stop. And yep. that's like every day I, I'm sitting and I'm like, oh, come on, just be quiet for one second so <laughs> I can just focus on writing my talking points yeah. about our show that we're doing. Like, yeah. But there's all this creative stuff that's going around when you can open the door and you open the door and are liberated and do what you said, which is, be driven by inspiration mm-hmm. and not by striving or, you know, just going, what is, what wants to come out of me? Yeah. That, that's yeah. where the joy is. Mm-hmm. And that was hard one for me. Um, I had the problem of, I could not make the ideas come when I was a young man and really wanted to be a writer before I gave it all up. Um, I was struggling with coming up with meaningful ideas. Everything that I had come up with, it just seemed to hit the reader like a thud. It was just lifeless, boring, uninteresting. <laughs> and so I had to, what I discovered about the process was I didn't have to learn to make the ideas come. I had to unlearn the bad habits that were blocking them from coming. And once I had removed those mechanisms that were in place to block my subconscious, that's when they started to come. And then once you open that floodgate, it's really just, you know, how, how, how inspired do you want to be? Just let it, just let it rip. Okay. It so, rip. so you had writer's block for 20 years. Yeah. Give or take 20 years. Yep. And you know, there was a level of, um, you know, depression or what, uh, you described as depression and. Oh yeah. No, the depression was, uh, it wasn't just a, a subtext on that. Um, the depression got to the state where it was debilitating. So one morning I woke up and it took me four hours to get dressed and, um, it was a weekend day. So I took the Monday off and I went to see the doctor and I said, what the heck? 
is going on. Yeah. And he said, oh, you're depressed. Right. And, you know, I, I didn't believe it because I had that same image that I think a lot of people had of depression at the time. Is it, it's, it's, I'm not sad. Um, I, I don't feel like crying. I, it was, it was completely, for me, it was, this was a left field thing. And then I learned that now it wasn't a left field thing. It, it's actually something that I had struggled with in the past and not, and dismissed it. And it was something that was under the surface and eventually it was going to torpedo me. And it did. And then, so that was the first sort of moment of adversity. And yeah. then you move into losing your mother. Yeah. Yeah. It, it precipitated actually. My mother had died um, about a year and a half earlier from when I, when I crashed. So then when I describing there, that, that incident, that one Saturday morning, that was a, um, that was my rock bottom. That was as low as it got. And then you got a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got a dog. I see. I had, um, I had tried a bunch of different things uh, about the depression. As I was sliding into the depression and not realizing it, I was doing things like, oh, I'm not going to work the crazy hours anymore. I'm going to back that off and have some me time. Um, you know, I bought the condo, which was a nice a step forward, you know, for young people moving into that. Sure. Age. You know, you, you need a home. So that was something I had checked off my list. Got a home. Good. Don't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, none of these things worked. And I took antidepressants. That, that was the... The eye opener for me was the antidepressants really worked and they made me feel better. And then it was like, oh, is this what everybody feels like all the time? That's incredible. Wow. <laughs> How did I miss this? I've never felt this good. <laughs> and the trouble is they wear off. Your body gets used to them and they wear off. And if you don't treat the underlying cause that yeah. created the depression in the first place, all the antidepressants are is a Band-Aid that you're putting over. It's like the painkillers. If you've broken a bone and they give you painkillers, it's not going to heal the bone properly. That's work you need to do. So predictably, the antidepressants stopped working and medical science said, well, just up the dose. And that was, that was a no moment for me. It's like, no, this doesn't sound right. I need to get to the cause of this. Um, Fortunately, the antidepressants helped me get my life in order and put myself in the situation where now I was in a relationship and we were going to adopt a dog. And we got this little puppy. Uh, first time ever getting a puppy from a breeder because I had to have a schnauzer because that was my thing. I had to have a schnauzer. And schnauzers are hypoallergenic, which meant the dog could be in our apartment and it wasn't going to cause my wife or I to have any allergic reactions. So it had to be one of these hypoallergenic breeds. So we brought this little schnauzer home. And the experience of just raising and training a puppy was so eye-opening. For me, I was at the dog park every afternoon, um, walking this, these beautiful streets in this beautiful city, and I'm taking it in what felt like for the first time. I'd lived here for uh, eight years or so, no more than that, and before we got the dog. Uh, and I was, it was like I was seeing the city for the first time. I was seeing the world through the eyes, I guess because it was a dog, the nose of a dog, of an innocent, looking at the world and seeing it beautiful like I was looking at it for the first time. That was a really cathartic experience. And it made me appreciate life so much more. Would you say that an aspect of you is Sarah? I'd have to, I'd have to cop to that. <laughs> I don't like to admit it. 
but um, it's it's telling that Sarah has in the same position I was in um, for different reasons. She's a fictional character. I cooked up her story, but she's depressed. She's having a rough time with her life. There's reasons why she's having a rough time with her life. For me, it was overwork, focusing on the wrong things, and then my mother passing was just such a shock. All right. Just such a shock. Lose somebody so important in your life that had never happened to me before. Um, that it was that important, that level of of meaning, right? And really makes you forced to face your own mortality. Yeah. When great grandma died and I was a little kid, I didn't have an appreciation for who great grandma was and her life. And it didn't occur to me that this is going to happen to me one day, right? But to watch your own parent pass, it was very obvious that this is yeah, staring at the barrel of death, right? So um, Sarah's story is different, but Sarah's circumstances are very familiar. And I like how it's, I've never, I've never interviewed someone with a children, a children's book in mind, right? Or having done this, every time I hold this up, your face softens like this is your baby. (laughs) But I really like the picture. I really like the picture. See, I did a little bit of research on what does it take to make a good book? And one of the things they'll all tell you is you got to have a great cover. You got to have a great cover. You do. And I had drafted a couple covers of my own that were terrible. Um, don't mind saying so. It's just, I'm drawing is not my forte, but Alina in her typical style, she turns in this artwork and I'm just like, Oh, just. Yeah. yeah. It, it's worth a smile. And I am really drawn to this book. I, I'm not drawn to children's books. Um, the only one that I am literally taken with is the Velveteen Rabbit. Because mm. I feel like I'm the Velveteen Rabbit a lot of times in my life. I like the Velveteen Rabbit. Uh, but this book I am taken with. And maybe it's because of the, the story underneath. Yeah. And it really gives the perspective of real. And, and this is why we gelled, right? Because I said to you, every story matters for me. It is so important that everyone gets to share their story and where they came from and why they did what they did. This isn't necessarily promoting Montgomery Schnauzer PI. Um, It's promoting the beauty of what's underneath the story and that, you know, you can be depressed. You can feel like you don't have purpose. You could be in a creative who is, you know, just locked in that creative space and really not understanding the, the, the delicate balance of how to do the things that you've just talked about. This is actually comes out here in this beautiful children's story about a, a dog who is solving a crime um, and who wins the love of a woman, his friend now, because he lost his master. Yeah, he did. Right? So yeah. he's like, he loses his master. He goes, well, what's going to happen to me now? And he just stays in the confidence of who he is. You keep him in his integrity mm-hmm. as you work him through the book and you let that confidence present itself. And she just, uh, you can watch like the hard edges just kind of, fall off as you take us through these moments in this book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
I make a distinction in literature that I think, I, w- I wish the publishing industry would do it too, because I view this book as not a children's book, but as an all ages book. Well, I'm enjoying it. I, I, thank you. That's great. It's a compliment because it's supposed to be, this was my intent. It was supposed to be a book that parents would enjoy reading to their kids. Yeah. When I was a little kid, we would go to the library and we would bring back books that we thought dad would like, because if dad liked the book, he would read it to us. So we were seeking out things that dad would like. And that energy came forward in this book because I just, I wanted to create a book that, that parents would enjoy reading to their kids and it wouldn't be a chore. It would be fun to do. And to tell that I had to tell an adult story as well as telling a kid's story. And some of the best movies that you watch. I was just going to say. They are, they appeal to everybody, right? The, the, uh, the Disney animated classics, um, the Lego movie. What a great movie that was for somebody who grew up playing with Lego and then to sit there in your 40s and your 50s watching this and going, I remember that. Totally. I remember what it was like to be that kid. Um, and the kids are watching it going, it's Lego, it's great. And the parents are going, yeah, I remember that. You know, So you got to put something in there for everybody. And it's um, a rare talent. I'm not bragging. I, I, there's other writers out there who do a much better job than I am and I admire them for it. But it's a rare talent to say, I'm going to make an all ages story. Right? It's a, a bit also like, um, take somebody like uh, Jerry Seinfeld who can make an entire audience laugh without one dirty word, without one fart joke. It's just, it's all clean and hilarious. And not everybody can do that. I respect the talent that makes that happen. So I wanted an all ages book. I would love to see bookstores carry an all ages section so that this is the place where we can go. Um, I guess kids really like Paw Patrol. You think I would be into it, but there's nothing in there for an adult. Nothing at all. Paw Patrol, there's nothing there. Just my nephew looking at it just like this. He loves Paw Patrol. Yeah, it's cute. It's really That's cute. It. They got that. They nailed that. It's really cute. But yeah. But. So, um, when an adult tells me that they love the story, that is, that's a high compliment because that meant I hit the note that I wanted to hit. Um, and kids too. I, I love it when kids love the book, obviously. Um, but it wasn't supposed to be just a kid's book. So it's good news to me to hear that adults like it too. It's uh, because I can see it. Right, like I've, I, I, I see Sarah in my mind's eye as she turns, and the licky and sticky, like she, like she sings, she sees the wink, you know, yeah. and yeah. I can see it happen. And I, you know, you just, I, I go to the dog park, I go to the park every day. You know, we've got our dogs that they come flying around, and Nymeria plays, and it's it's quite joyful. But you, you just see it how you how you describe it here is, is really how it happens in life. Mm -hmm. And I just, I so appreciate it. You know, the, the creative process is so interesting. It is, um, another fully loaded conversation that I'd really like to have with you. Um, I'd love it too. And I think that we, that's the next step for us. We've touched on a few things here, but if, if we started talking about the creative process, we'd be going for another hour and a half, like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's do that. Um, and get together and, and really dive into that because I, I, I haven't encountered someone like you, Tim, where you are saying the things that I have felt that I have struggled with the, um, the pain 
of mm-hmm. not being able to create and that feeling that happens. It's, it's rough, isn't it? It's rough. Yeah. I was probably around 40 when it really hit me. Um, I think it may have been earlier. I think it was more like I'm looking down the barrel at 40 and I'm going, I'm going to be 40 years old. And I never did this one thing that I really wanted to do. And I let other things get in my way. I never, you know, at 40 and I never created my art. That's sad. That's sad. So at, at 40, I started dibbling in this whole the podcast. Yeah. Well, you're doing a great job. Love the show. Well, thank you. And I, and for me, this is what this is about. There, there's a story in everything. And mm-hmm. I had to learn like you did where, you know, you, you learn to trust yourself. Yep. You learn to bet on you. Yeah. And yep. whether, and like you, I'm, I don't care where this goes. This is an all ages show. It doesn't matter to me to make money. Oh, I don't, that doesn't even, yeah. not even, you know, it's not part of my life. I, I don't care. What yeah. I care about is the message. And, you know, today after this show, I'm walking into another show um, that is on juvenile diabetes, type one diabetes. Mm. That's a show that yeah. I think, and stories but I look at it and her son is five. And I think to myself, you know, there's like possibility is so important. And this has a level of levity about it that mm-hmm. can connect to people at all ages in all aspects of life. It's just got yeah. this little thing to it. And I wonder, well, actually, um, I don't wonder. I know for certain that the reason why it feels that way is because of how you created it with yeah. the intention that is underneath. There is, I think there's truth to the energy that you hold and the energy that you create with actually comes through and is pushed out with your product or mm-hmm. whatever you've created. Yeah. I think when people create art, what you're really doing is you're speaking with your soul's true voice. Oh, I got to write that down. <laughs> like, you should, look at this. <laughs> Taking notes. I seriously, I just, it's, oh. it's about the truest way I can explain it. And it's why you can't force it. And it's why you can't go in with material means in mind. Not that we don't all want to make money making art, but, yeah, but- when you make money making art, that's, um, a reinforcement of the cycle. It's life that gave you the ability to make art and it's money that gives you food that gives you life. So it's part of the cycle of life and art is part of the cycle of life. And if you look back at human history, there hasn't been a point in human history where we didn't make art. We started out drawing with, um, you know, blood and, and plants on cave walls. That's where we started. And we just, we're just driven to create art. Um, and I think it's because it's your soul's voice wanting to speak, wanting to come out. And it's difficult to force because then you're denying that energy, that part of you, the id, the, the innermost core of your being, you're denying that. And that's, that's what creates writer's block. That's what creates these problems when it comes to making art. You just have to let it happen. 
Um, it bears mentioning, it's interesting because your, your um, next guest with her diabetic son, who's only five, and it just reminded me of one thing about Monty is that he, he's an abandoned shelter dog. So he has all the limitations of a normal dog that he's only a dog and he's got a leash and he's reliant on his humans for everything, but he's a shelter dog. So he's, he's in the worst place a dog can be. And he still rises above that and fulfills his dream of becoming a detective. And I wanted that message in the story right from the get-go because of people like this little boy. And I'm just thinking what five-year-old doesn't just absolutely love sugar. Like they were born sugar addicts, all of us. Absolutely. So it must be so challenging for her. And then, you know, he's going to grow up and he's going to be like my, um, my very good friend, my best friend who um, has been a diabetic since birth. And so he's been through this and he's in his forties now and he, he and I write screenplays together and he's very disciplined. I have never met a more disciplined man and his life literally depends on it. Absolutely. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But it's an important message for all of us to know that it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, you can rise above it. You can achieve the next level. You can go someplace different with your circumstances. You're not stuck with the cards you're dealt. Never, ever. Well, you weren't stuck with depression. No, no. You, you've, you've allowed it to be. Yeah. You've yeah. allowed it to be. You've allowed it to exist. And, and if it steps forward, it steps forward. If it, if it steps back, it steps back, but it seems to me like you're in peace with it and you're in flow with it. And that is, a. uh, but that is showing me how you live the rest of the other areas of your life. You are right when you say that um, this little boy that I'm talking, I'm not talking to him at this stage. I'm talking to his mama. Yeah. She's a single mom. Wow. She um, has two children. And this boy was diagnosed at 18 months old. Oh, dear. And imagine, how do you diagnose a child at 18 months when they can't talk? So this story is profound because people like, who have this as their life now, mm-hmm. the, the parents wake up at 10, 12, 2, 4, because they are worried about the levels of their children. Got to check them, yeah. And they have to pay an obscene amount of money to buy insulin to keep their kids alive. Yeah. Um, it's There's a show. something wrong with that, by the way. But. There is something wrong with that, and we're going to have that conversation. <laughs> Good. Um, I'm going to gift, uh, I'm buying another book from you, and I'm going to gift it to him and his sister because I think it okay. is that important. And, uh, that was one of my, um, you know, off the camera moments with you, but that's seemingly on camera. And okay. so there we are, okay. but, well, but we can go to your website and buy it, right? Yeah, you can, but, uh, you don't, you don't have to buy it for that purpose. Uh, I just, of course not. That, <laughs> Spencer would want this little boy to have a book. So I will, I will gift him the book. You need to provide me with the, the name and address and what you'd like the inscription to be, and uh, I'll make sure it goes there. Oh, you. And I'll put a little note saying it's courtesy of the Lori Clark Show. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, Tim. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Send, send me an email with the details, and I'll make sure it happens. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I will. Yeah. So thank you so much for doing this. And, and, and I want to thank Spencer for you know, being in the wings on this thing yeah. and letting it, it, it unfold. And 
for you to see that, you know, there's such beauty in this story. And thank you for writing um, Sarah in here in the way that she is. Thank yeah. you for bringing in Fritz and little Houdini and Stinky and Licky and Licky and Sticky, Licky and sticky. whatever it is. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you for making it an all ages book. I'm, I'm loving it. Good. I'm so happy to hear it. Um, I, I wrote a whole bunch of things here because that's how I roll. Uh, so I have to have you back on because we've got to talk about the creative process. Uh, okay. something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, but the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway, I wrote it on my notes when we were in the rain and my notebook is, I couldn't use it after because it was just, it was just wet. It was wet. Yeah, um, I had that problem. I wrote, love is love. And you and I talked about that it, uh, in the coffee shop and you brought it up again today. Mm-hmm. Love is love. Um, and that is the gift that pets can give to us. It's the gift that that writing can give to us. It is the gift of honoring your soul's voice yep. that can give to, that can give back. So thank you for offering all of these things to us. Uh, oh, you're most welcome. A pleasure. Ah, just love it. It's been a pleasure to be on the show, Lori. I'm I'm tickled pink about the whole thing. <laughs> well, let's have coffee. Okay. Yeah, I'm game. Love it. Um, I will talk to you soon and I'll email you and we'll set something up. Okay. Looking forward to it. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye, Lori.